This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome, everybody. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Vortex. It's good to have you with us today. We're in a series, actually wrapping it up today, called I Choose Jesus. But if you're a part of our church family, you probably know that we're in a season called 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. and It's where we set aside three weeks to seek God and often to fast. And I think that, you know, if you're like me, when you get to this portion of the fast, that last leg, that last seven days, that last week, things start to happen inside of you. You start to fantasize about the stuff that you're not eating right now, right? I don't know about y'all, but we, we, we cut out red meat for like three weeks, which, and I love cheeseburgers. I mean, like, I don't mean like I like cheeseburgers. I love cheeseburgers. It's like a love affair. Like, it's been years in the making. It's going strong. I love them. And I find myself at this stage in the game just sitting, like sometimes just sitting around thinking about cheeseburgers. Just I'll miss you, cheeseburger. I wish you were here. I would love to put some bacon on you and maybe, maybe, maybe just some spicy mustard and some goat cheese. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't, y'all going all weird on me. Listen, I don't like regular burgers. I like fancy burgers, okay? And I'm in love with them. And every once in a while at this stage, I just find myself daydreaming about burgers. How stupid is that, right? You know why fasting is important? Is it shows us that for many of us, we've fallen in love with the things of this world. And this last week, as our minds and our hearts start to drift to those things that we are so captivated by, I think we should be reminded that our home is not here. That there's something that waits us that's a lot better than a cheeseburger. (laughs) And I think that it's a good reminder of how wrapped up we get in the lives that we live. Now, when I was 12 years old, as we get started in this message, I was given a really phenomenal gift. My grandmother is from Germany. and, And so when... I turned 12. She decided that it would be a good idea to take me across the pond to go and visit her family. So I got to spend a good portion of my summer vacation in Germany that summer with her and my grandfather. It was literally life-changing. I believe, honestly, that during that trip, God began a work. I'll write about this one day that that it ultimately culminated in me giving my life to Jesus. And and really, on that trip, it, it was I got to see so much because there's so much family there that I don't get to see, and they all wanted to take me different places. And so I really got to travel. They said by the time I left, I saw more of Germany than most Germans ever see of Germany. And one of the places that I want to go, but because by, by the time I was 12, I was already uh, kind of a history, but buff. I I loved um, history. I was learning all about it. I'd had a really great teacher the year before, learned so much. And so I wanted to see a concentration camp. I wanted to see one. If you ask a German to take you to a concentration camp, they get very upset. 
So just so you know in the future, that's not the question you want to ask. Take me. To, can I see? A, because it's a very um, sore spot in their in their history. They're they're not very proud of it. And and so I uh, one of my relatives took me to Dachau, which is the the first concentration camp ever built, um, one of the last to be liberated. It, it, it is a sobering moment when you step on those grounds. When you walk through the mu museum and you see the pictures of what the Allies saw and found when they first arrived and liberated that camp. These people who were held for ethnic reasons, some, some of the greatest historical writers uh, as far as believers, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in a concentration camp. Uh, greatest theologian uh, maybe in, in some of the past 200 years. You step onto those grounds and you walk to the crematoriums and you see the dust that's still there and you walk into the gas chamber. It, it's sobering. It's, it's just sobering to see it. But I noticed a sign as I was walking in and literally this sign was placed on the entry point to every concentration camp ever built. And it's this sign right here. Arbeit macht frei. Which translated means work will make you free. And it was the lie that the captives were told every day. If you'll work harder, if you'll be good, eventually you might get free. And I believe that that lie is a lie that we have bought into on a spiritual level. As a matter of fact, I'd say the greatest lie that we as Christians in this era believe is that we can earn the favor and grace of God through our efforts. That we can earn the favor and grace of God through our efforts. Can I just tell you something? When it comes to the kingdom of God, you cannot earn or take what can only be given. You cannot earn or take what can only be given. Grace, love, connection, all of those things are things that can only be given. And today, we're going to talk kind of talk about a topic I think that really deals with that tension of feeling like we can do something and feeling responsible for something that we're not and not resting in the great gift that we've already been given in Jesus Christ. Now, this series has kind of anchored itself in Galatians chapter 5. So we're going to go back there as we kind of get started today. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 kicks off this way. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again with slavery to the law. So he's telling us that the whole purpose of this, I love the NIV translation, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. The purpose of all of this was to set you free. It was not, pay close attention, to get you to heaven. It was to set you free. All right? The end game as a result is heaven, but the purpose of this was freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. It was this intended purpose 
And so he continues in verse 13, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So he begins to kind of elevate that there's a tension in freedom. Freedom always now involves choice. And the problem with being free is that you get to choose. And so the choice needs to be kind of elevated. We need to understand what the choice is. So he continues in verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. So there's the decision. Am I going to follow the Holy Spirit or am I going to do what my sinful nature desires? See, God has set us free to choose between being led by the Holy Spirit and choosing to be led by our own physical desires. That's freedom. And we can choose Jesus, or we can choose what we want. And the thing that happens is when we make the right spiritual decision, it allows us to make other better decisions. So when we choose Jesus, that's the primary choice. That's the first choice. It allows us to make other secondary decisions. So the Apostle Paul describes those. The Holy Spirit produces, notice that word produces this kind of fruit. This means that this is secondary. There's something that had to happen first so that fruit could then be produced. This is a secondary decision that he's about to describe. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And so... Throughout this series, I've just kind of pointed you to the fact that Jesus died so that you could have a life that looks like that. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to have a life that is loving and filled with joy, where you can be patient, have peace no matter what the circumstances are. He wants you to live with self-control. He purchased the rights for you to have all of that when he died for you on the cross. But if we're honest, and that was a checklist, and we had to go through and check off the ones that we're living with right now, how many of you could check them all off? None of us could. Because our lives, when we're honest and look compared to that, don't look anything like that. And the reason is, is that we haven't chosen Jesus. Because we have to choose Jesus first to then be able to make the decision to love, to make the decision to have joy, to choose peace in the storm. It is the first decision that leads to those. So to choose Jesus is to choose love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's what we're going to look at today Self-control is, is such a tricky topic to talk about because I could talk to you about it in, in ways that probably many of us have heard it presented. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that to, by the time I get done today, you're going to go, I've never heard it talked about that way. And so th- that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that but because this is, I'm trying to navigate the, tension, the holistic tension that's brought throughout the entirety of Scripture. See, when we start to talk about self-control, the most important question we'll ask ourselves is the first thing in your notes today, is which self is in control? Which self is in control? 
Some of y'all may be going, what do you mean, which self? I'm not, I'm not like split personalities dude over here. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like I've got Charlie living inside of me, and then there's Sherry. She comes out sometimes. Right? It's not, I'm not talking about that. All right. As a matter of fact, it's a tension that really, and, and a reality that emerges all throughout Scripture. And when we start to read Scripture with this understanding, things really change about the way that we understand Scripture. So look at this. First Thessalonians 5.23 kind of gives us an insight into this. I used this in the first message just to go back and review. Um, now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and whole body or, or whole soul and whole body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. So there's this reality that we are spirit, soul, and body. So a lot of times we don't realize that we're that way. So I thought it would be fun to do a little whiteboard again um, just to remind us of, of this reality and how this works because we are a physical body in physical existence. And I think it's entirely shameful as believers how much of our attention stays focused on this. How clean is the house? What kind of car am I driving? I need to lose some weight. All right, my hair don't look good today. I don't have any hair, so that wasn't apparently for me at all. <laughs> all right? Our physical lives and the enjoyment that we have in our physical lives, the experiences that we have in our physical life, how much of our attention is focused on that. But see, we're not just physical people. We are also a spirit, which is an eternal being. This is the miracle of Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 3, to uh, apparently his friend Nicodemus, says that, no, for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must be born again. And what, is, what do you mean born again? I've already been born. I can't. This is not going to work out with my mom very well, um, Jesus. And so, and so the, the tension there is there. How, what do you mean? He goes, no, born of spirit, born of spirit. You must be spiritually reborn. And so when we choose to follow Jesus, it's not just a simple choice. It's a miracle as God completely gives us new birth spiritually. But we're not just... Physical bodies and, and spirit. And here, here's, I think, one of the big travesties of, of our current age is that when we talk about discipline in the church, we talk about it on those two arenas. We, we talk about it in spiritual disciplines. You need to pray. You need to read your Bible. And we talk about physical discipline as in behaviors. But we don't talk about this, our soul. And the soul is the root of our emotions. And in the same way that we have the capacity to make decisions physically and that we can make decisions spiritually, we can make decisions in our soul. These are where the secondary decisions happen. I make a spiritual decision so in my soul I can choose peace. I make the right spiritual decision so in my soul I can choose joy. Right, And so we have to decide, first off, which self is going to be in control. Because number two in your notes, when we choose to follow the Holy Spirit, we choose to let our spiritual lives be the primary influence in our life. It's a huge deal. 
when we choose to follow the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, our spiritual lives, the way that we live spiritually becomes the primary influencer in everything. And this is what happens if we go back to the whiteboards, that our spiritual decisions then kind of warp over into our soul and all of a sudden we can choose to do things in our soul that we couldn't choose before because you've been in situations that were troubled before and the reaction is anxiety and fear but all of a sudden now as a believer when I put my trust and faith in Jesus and I get in there I can choose peace even when my circumstances don't look like they're peaceful I can choose to be peaceful And how does that happen? All of a sudden, that impacts the way I live. Live with more clarity, make better decisions. Why? Because it starts over here. The Holy Spirit's in charge and has a vast influence over the rest of our lives. But number three, when we choose to follow our sinful desires, we allow our physical lives to be the primary focus of our life. And this is people that you know, people that I know, people who are more focused on the world that we live in right now. And it seems benign and and not maybe that terrible at first. But when you watch it over a span of time, you see how devastating it can be. The guy who's working overtime and overtime and overtime. Why are you working overtime? You've been missing out on your kids' lives for the last six months. What's going on? Well, we're trying to save up some money so we can get a nicer car. You just missed six months of your kid's life to get a nicer car focused on this world. Focused on this world, this existence, our physical life alone. And when it becomes the primary focus of our lives, we start to make some pretty bad decisions. And it actually works the inverse. That when we become led by our physical desires, it will influence our soul. And all of a sudden, now when we hit troubled times and difficult situations, we can't choose peace. All, all we can live in is the anxiety and fear that came with the situation. And then it has detrimental, eternal impact on our spirit. All right, we have to choose. Now, when we learn to read the scriptures from this perspective, some of the scriptures that we've read all along begin to make total sense. One of those is first, or 2 Timothy 1.7. I love this scripture. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, do you notice... He doesn't say he gave us a body of strength and power. Give us what? Spirit. Not of fear, but of power and love. And so it's a spiritual decision that then leads to a decision I can make in my soul that then plays out in my life. And so many times we think, oh, well, this is just something that God's going to sprinkle fairy dust over me. It's just going to automatically, magically happen. No, it's a spiritual decision. 
I think that that's exactly why the Apostle Paul calls it fruit. It takes time to develop. You make that decision, and you learn that practice, and then you grow into this, and you can make that decision, and then you learn and grow with that discipline, and then you grow into the other. And one of those is self-control. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk about what it would mean if we embrace and choose self-control. The first thing that we need to do if we're going to choose self-control is that we must accept that we have very little control. We have very little control. If we're going to really live in self-control, we must accept that we have very little control. Remind you of a few things. You probably already know these, but some of y'all struggle with them like it's your demons riding your back. All right, watch this one. You cannot control the weather. <laughs> how, many, how many of y'all ever get in conversation with somebody and that's all they talk about? They just complain it's too hot, it's too cold, rained too much, had rained enough. I wish it wouldn't do the snow thing. I wish it wouldn't do the ice. I wish the winds would die down. I wish this weather would change. You know what? If you want sunnier days, okay, you can move to Florida. It's sunnier there, okay? If you want to move to an area where you don't have to worry about it raining, Portland, Oregon is a great city, okay? Rains there all the time, right? But if you live here, you can't control the weather. And you shouldn't get upset when it doesn't rain or when it's too cold or too hot because you're not in charge. You can't control it. That's out of your control. You want to know what else is out of your control? You cannot control other people, including spouses and kids, employees or employers. You cannot control them. Now, you may feel like you can control your kids sometimes. I, I mean, you give me enough duct tape, I can make my kids sit still and, be, like, listen. Like, just sit there. But they don't really even just sit there when you do that. They still kind of wiggle inside that. I'm not saying that from experience at all. I've never done that personally. Please, nobody call DSS. <laughs> no, seriously, I've never done that. But you could, right? And you feel like you're in control. There's some of you that have used manipulation to try to control your circumstances for so long, and it leaves you with this false sense of control over somebody else. You have no control over other people. You don't. You don't get to make decisions for them. That's your spouse, your kids, your employees, employers. You cannot control, I wish I could talk for the rest of the time on this, your story up to now and your family of origin. Some of you have made some pretty bad mistakes in the past. Some of you have had some bad mistakes that have been made to you. Some of you came out of families, literally you were taught to be an addict. You grew up in addictive behavior. You, you were taught how to be dysfunctional in a relationship because you grew up in dysfunction. You cannot control that. You can't. You have zero control over that because ultimately you cannot control life. You can't control life. In the essence of life itself. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am life. And we have no control over him. 
You cannot manipulate God. You cannot control him. But here's the good news. That we can love, serve, and follow a God that does control the weather, that can influence and work with other people's hearts. A God that does rescue us from our stories and our families of origin and a God who does control life. Because we are remarkably out of control. The second thing that I want you to see today is that we must embrace that we have limited control over ourselves. We have limited control over ourselves. I I think the greatest illustration of that for us is our health. Now, you can influence your health by making smart decisions and eating right and exercising and doing all that sort of thing. But there's so many other factors that go into it. Your genetics, family history, what you've been exposed to throughout your entire life. You can influence your health, but you can't control it. Which is why a good friend of mine's story, who's was from our church here, just about two years ago, called me in the middle of the day. She said, Kevin, I went in because I was having some pain in my abdomen. They were able to see me today, and they found a tumor on my uterus. They think it's cancerous. Kevin, I've never even had the flu. I've never, I've never really been sick a day in my life. I've worked hard. I've stayed in good shape. I've ate well. And she received a very significant diagnosis when fought it as hard as she could. As hard as she could. Every experimental medication that she could get her hands on. And 14 months later, she died. I don't care how old you are right now. Somebody your age this week received a terminal diagnosis that will never be changed. You can influence your health, and we should, but you can't control it. You are not in control of it. I think even more than that, we see that with our hearts. See, we can influence our hearts But our hearts can deceive us. I think that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, keep a vigilant watch over your heart, for that's where life starts. Because we can be deceived, and we can get to a point where even when something is wrong, we can think it's right. That's why we're warned twice in the book of Proverbs. There's a way that appears to be right, but the end, it leads to death. Happens in Proverbs 14.12 and then again in Proverbs 16.25. Can I just give you this advice? If Proverbs says it twice, it's probably really important. Because we have limited control over ourselves. When I tried to think this week through the things that are in our lives that we actually do have control over. What I've realized is that the control that we have is largely over our responses in life. It's our responses. It's how we respond to what has been given. 
And once we get to the point where we realize that the control that we have in our life is largely connected to our response, we need to know this and embrace this, that we must realize our future lives will be the sum of our responses. Now, some of you, you're young. Future life is 30, 40 years. Some of y'all, future life is 10 to 15 years. But that future life, the life that lies in front of you, is going to be the sum of your responses. And see, response is important to understand because response is ultimately worship. It's worship. I love what Richard Foster said in the book, The Celebration of Discipline. He said that worship is our response to the overtures of love that God has been playing for us. How we respond to God is our worship to God. But the the kind of crux of that statement in that reality is that oftentimes, if we're honest, we're not responding to God. What we're living in response to is other people's opinions, trying to make it better financially, or trying to earn our way out of a, a situation that we got ourselves into. See, the problem is, is that oftentimes we are living in response to something that's not God. And whatever you're responding to, that's what you're worshiping. So if it's other people's opinions that you are more often responding to, maybe it's a relationship or a friendship, maybe you're responding to what your boss expects out of you. Maybe it's even just your own expectations of yourself. Whatever you're responding to is what you're worshiping. And our responses right now will determine the future that we live in, which is why I love Dave Ramsey and Financial Peace University. I love the the teaching that they leverage for us because it it doesn't teach that financial success in our lives is, is built on acquiring a lot more money than we have. It really is just on managing what God has already given us. Almost universally, whenever we deal with families that are in crisis financially, it's not a resource problem. It's the allocation of the resource problem. And so we must learn to make wise decisions as we respond. I love during that series, he says this, we must live like nobody else is willing to live today so that we can live like no one else tomorrow. So we sacrifice and we plan and we work towards something because the responses that we make today, ultimately our future lives are the sum of all of our responses. I thought it would be helpful to watch a little video that kind of puts this in perspective. Watch this with me. The future is a million little choices. Practice or play video games. Two hours in the gym or two hours at the movies. A little extra work or a little extra play. 
reconcile or let the sun go down on your anger? Get up or push the snooze button again? Take a potential client to the game or take a kid from a broken home? Spend that bonus on yourself or give it to a minister that reaches out to pregnant teens. If we could get a picture of the future, if we could jump ahead 10, 15, 20 years, and see the accumulation of our decisions, the chain of events we set in motion, how differently would we live today? How would we choose to spend our time? What would we walk away from? How would we treat the people around us? What would we choose to pursue with passion? Where would we choose to invest our skills and our resources? Your future is a million little choices. And it starts today. So throughout this series, we've been asking the question, if love, joy, peace, and patience, all of those things and self-control are the second decision, what's the choice before the choice? Because the right spiritual decisions allow us to make other better decisions. So what's the decision that opens the door to self-control? I would tell you today that we must choose to allow our first and primary response to be the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's really just that simple, that we must choose which self is going to be in control. Where are we going to be led from? See, for many of us today, the problem is that we've been living lives where it's been so entirely focused on our physical experience, our physical lives. and In that, we've missed out on the truth that if we choose to follow the Holy Spirit, that then we can choose love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We can live with self-control. But it is only a secondary decision behind that first and primary decision of leading or being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing that I want some of you to just kind of think about for a moment with me. Earlier I said whatever you're responding to is what you're worshiping. And I think that if we're honest, sometimes our first and primary decision is not to go to the Holy Spirit for leadership. It's to go to somebody else's opinion. It's to go to a book or to a news article or to a blog. It's to go to the TV or to a podcast. It's it's to go to Oprah or some other voice that speaks into our lives. It's to go to our friends or maybe mom and dad. And we go there first. And wherever you go first is who and what you're worshiping. And today, I want you to realize that that decision 
to go to God and to say, God, you lead me, I'll respond to you, will forever change your life because it will open the door to so many other decisions. And today, if you're here, maybe you're the person that's finally realized that the decisions that you're making right now are leading up to a future that you don't want. You don't want to live the life. It's not that it was bad for a season. It's not even that it's an issue of sin. It's just that finally you're at a point where you realize that you want to make a different decision. And the decisions and the responses that you've been making to the leadership of the Holy Spirit where you've been saying, God, can we just wait a little bit? God, can we just put that off? God, I've got an excuse for right now. God, God, no, not today. And finally, maybe today is the day that you realize that your future life is going to be the sum of your responses. And today's the day that you finally surrender and say, God, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Because I'm done fighting you. And I'm giving you all of me. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.